face the final frontier. Have you ever had a clear night wherever you're located? Have you had a clear night where you just look up to the sky, you see all of the stars that are there, and you wonder what in the world is out there? And you kind of take a step back. You start to think about big picture stuff. Um, and it's kind of cool to just do this every once in a while, I, I think. And, and now, if you're in a city and there might be, I don't know, smog or whatever it is, depending on where you're at, uh, may not be as clear of a sky. But there's sometimes when you'll get out in the country and you'll look up to the sky and you'll see the stars and they're clear, they're vivid. Um, they're beautiful and, uh, it's just, it's just simply amazing. So it's really cool to talk with my guest that I have today. His name is Dr. Stephen Case. Um, he is a professor at Olivet Nazarene University. Uh, he also runs the planetarium that's there. And so it was extremely cool to talk with him. Um, and super smart guy, like he's the kind of guy like scary smart, maybe not. He's a pretty cool guy. But it was neat to talk with him today and, uh, and find out his perspective on certain things. Um, the answer to the Big Bang Theory may or may not be on this podcast. And, you know, I don't know. You'll have to listen to find out. But um, as you look at the stars, for me, I look at the stars and I not only think that they're absolutely beautiful, it's, it's peaceful, it's relaxing. Um, but it's also, it's amazing to think about the creator God and to look up and know that he created those as well. Um, that he is, he's bigger than just, it's just not just the earth. A lot of times I think we just get stuck on, oh, he's a creator God and he created the earth and, and you know, that's his limit though. He can't go outside of that, you know, maybe a few stars here and there, but when you really begin to think about it, you know, just universe upon universe, just, he made that. And in the grand scheme of things, some of you might have seen this before, but in the grand scheme of things, um, we are so tiny and small and we matter to him. I think it's pretty stinking cool. Um, now, one of the things that uh, I really appreciated that I was when I was talking with uh, Stephen was um, that when when it comes time to there are certain major questions um, and knowing the answer to certain questions. He doesn't just give his students the answer. He will make them figure it out on their own, what they believe, and then have them figure out how to defend why they believe what they believe. And I'll have to say, I greatly appreciate that because a lot of times I find there are a lot of people out there that have just been given the answers. When we look at, you know, a ton of things, um, but when it comes to comes to God and comes to what you believe uh, in that respect, a lot of people are just given the answers. And then when you start talking with these people and you ask them to defend why they believe what they believe, it comes down to, well, I don't know. I've just always believed it that way. Uh, I've always just felt that. I've always whatevered that. And, you know. That doesn't really fly just because you need to know why you believe what you believe. Be able to back that up, to have evidence of that in your life, um, to have scripture, to there's a ton of things that you should have, not just, well, that's the way it's always been. So I've just always believed it. Um, you've probably heard this story, but there was a uh, there's a, a mother teaching her daughter how to cook a ham. And what the mother always does was the mother always cuts the ends off the ham. And so one day the daughter goes, I'm kind of curious, Mom, why ha why do you cut the ends off of the ham? She goes, well, I don't know. That's the way my mom always did it. She's like, let me call her up and find out. I'm kind of curious. So she calls up her mom and says, Mom, why do we always cut the ends off of the ham when we go to cook it? And the mom goes, that's a really good question. I have no idea why. We cut the ends off of the ham. It's just my mom always did it that way, so I figured that was the way you were supposed to do it. So then she calls her mom, happens to still be alive, calls her up, says, why do we cut the ends off of the ham? And her mom just kind of laughed because she knew that she was thinking there was some sort of a special recipe part to it. And she goes, honey, we cut the ends off of the ham because the oven that we had back in the day was too small for the entire thing to fit in. 
So sometimes we'll have traditions and things that we believe that really aren't true. And we think that there's some deep whatever meaning to it. And really, it's just it's just the way we've always done it. There's nothing deep or meaningful or anything to it. It's just the way we've always done it. So that being said, you need to be able to figure things out on your own. Um, I've heard the saying before, well, I go to church to get fed. You had better not. Because if you have a pastor that's corrupt, if you have small group leaders that are not right, you're going to starve. Are you joking me? I go to church to get fed? I hate that statement. That statement drives me absolutely insane. You need to be able to feed yourself. You don't come to church to be fed. You come to church to be led. Your pastor is the shepherd. The shepherd leads the flock. The shepherd doesn't necessarily grab handfuls of grass and go up to the sheep and go, come on now, let's eat. It doesn't do that. He leads them to an area where they can go and feed themselves. So he is leading. He is not the one who's going to sit there with a baba and let you suck on the teeth there. Come on, just stand up, feed yourself. It's not about that. So it just kind of drives me nuts when people say, I come to church to get fed. No, you shouldn't. You, you really shouldn't. You need to be able to find things out for yourself. You need to be able to know how to study scripture. Find out why it means what it means. I mean, there's a lot of simple questions you can ask when you're reading scripture. Who's writing it? Why are they writing it? Who are they writing it to? Um, why did they use this particular word? Why did they say that in this particular verse? Um, you know, when you look at who's writing it, man, um, I, I'm going to look at different authors and say they don't write the same. You know, when I look at Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's an aggressive writer. He comes at you. He's going to hit you in the mouth. He's going to just flat out say it. But then when I look at somebody who is like maybe John, John's love, he's, he's compassion. He has all these things that are going into it. Two completely different writers. Paul's going to say it. If you get offended, then you need to get over it. And John's going to say, I love you. I want you to understand. Just that kind of. And so you look at that. Well, those have two completely different writing styles. And so when you're figuring things out for yourself, you need to take these things into account when you're studying scripture. Not everybody's the same. And when you go, well, why does it say this? And somebody just tells you that doesn't always mean it's true. <gasps> you mean people that have said things to me in the past because that's the way they've always done it? It's not right. You best to be believing. Come on, get with the program. So that being said, my guest today, I appreciate the fact that he has his students figure things out on their own, figure out the answers to certain questions on their own, because when you do that, you not only believe that because of what you have found, you believe that because you have held it up against the light, you've held it up against uh, something that you might not have believed before, or what other people are believing, and you can be you believe that because you're convicted of it, uh, because this is, this is what I have found for myself. Um, a lot of times parents will coddle their children and just give them answers to stuff. Don't do that. Make your children find the answers on their own. Um, there are certain things that obviously we, we want you to tell them uh, about, but when it comes to studying scripture, when it comes to certain things like that, make them read it and research it. Quit enabling them to be lazy, to be bums. Make them study it. Make them find it out. Find out the reason why they believe what they believe and not just the way we've always done it. All right. All of that being said, I think you're really going to enjoy the interview today. Uh, Dr. Stephen Case, he's fantastic, an extremely interesting guy, sells books. Go and check them out. Um, he's an awesome guy. I really enjoyed the interview. So let's start the show. Yes. <laughs> you got me straight up tripping, boo. You dipping and dapping and don't know what's happening. They was grabbing hankies, waving blankies. They was running them aisles up in there. I respect your opinion, but you're wrong. Bodies. This is Nick Jones. 
Thanks for joining us today. Uh, my name is Nick Jones. You're on the Listen to the Legacy Helms podcast. Today with us, uh, we have Dr. Stephen Case with us, and we're excited to talk with him um, about space and different things like that. So thanks for joining us today, Stephen. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Or should I call you Dr. Case? Um, you know what? You can call me Steve. That's Steve. fine. All I, right. I mean, if you want, you can call me Dr. Case. But if, uh, if I, I need you know, to. You know why I got a PhD? Why? So I got a PhD because I, I saw this on the internet once that, uh, you know, my name is Steven. So everyone says, well, is it with a V or with a PH? And now I can say, actually, it's with a PhD. Nice. Well played. Yeah. Well, that's yep. the whole reason. That well, it, it, it's one of the reasons. <laughs> that that just kind of naturally flows. That's great. I thought about getting my doctorate so everyone would have to call me Doctor Jones, like Indiana Jones. Go. But I don't know. That's right. I don't. We'll no, no, we, we named the dog Indiana. Nice. <laughs> that's awesome. So, um, well, thanks for being on here today, and we're excited to get into this. So, tell us. Just briefly, what what is it that you do? Uh, yeah, so I um, I, I teach uh, I teach astronomy. Um, my uh, my so I, my background is, is a little bit odd. I, I kind of bounced. Well, I didn't really bounce, but uh, I you figure out what you want to do. Uh, sometimes you figure out what you, what you want to do when you grow up. Sometimes you don't figure out what you want to do until graduate school. Sure. Um, so I always knew I wanted to do astronomy. I, I remember going to the planetarium as a kid and just being just fascinated. I, just, I knew I wanted to do astronomy, teach people about astronomy, talk about astronomy, read about astronomy, write about astronomy. Um, and so I, uh, I got an undergraduate degree in physical science. I went on, and the plan was to do a Ph.D. in astronomy or physics. And so I was in a Ph.D. program for physics and very quickly realized did not want to get a Ph.D. in physics, um, and uh, I was at the University of uh, Mississippi, actually, in Oxford, Mississippi, and um, there, was a, there was a historian at the University of Mississippi who was a historian of astronomy, uh, or, excuse me, historian of science. She studied, she studied the history of science, and this was fascinating to me. I didn't even realize this was a thing. Uh, the idea of, of, you know, learning the story behind the science, how we know what we know and how we got to this point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that was what was really compelling to me. And, uh, and uh, so I, I came back and I was teaching uh, at all of that, but I knew that I wanted to do a Ph.D. in this, in this field of history of, history of science. So, um, so that's what my Ph.D. is in. I have a Ph.D. in the history and philosophy of science uh, from Notre Dame. And uh, it's a fantastic program, really interdisciplinary, really, um, uh, you, you, you do either a history, uh, history track or philosophy track, or actually now they've added a theology track, so you could go in the theology department and get your PhD in the history uh, and philosophy and theology of science. Um, so that's, so what, do I, what do I do with that? Uh, I teach, uh, and I write, uh, and I read. Uh, and I'm really interested in talking about about science, about astronomy. My my dissertation is specifically in the history of astronomy. Um, but I like to teach. I like to teach science to non-scientists because I like to tell um, you know I like to tell the story behind the science. And I think I think there are a lot of a lot of issues, a lot of uh, conflicts that people think science and religion have with each other that kind of that don't necessarily disappear, but you can really get a better handle on them if you know sort of the history behind the science. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the things that really appeals to me about the field. That is pretty sweet. What, okay, you're definitely talking to a non-scientist. Um, <laughs> I, I do find stuff fascinating, things like that, but I'm not a scientist. Um, so what would be like an example of something where you know, science help maybe helps explain something like, like you were saying, what, what would be an example of that? Uh, an example, uh, uh, ask, ask me that question one more time in a different way. Um, basically like what would be, what would be an example that you were saying? Cause a lot of times people will, will look at, at religion and science and like they're butting heads, sure, sure. but yeah, in, instead so... of doing that, maybe explaining it a little well, bit. More so, so one of the things I like to do is I like to talk about, um, you know, the, the, Everyone likes to talk about Galileo, right? Galileo is uh, is the Italian astronomer working in the 1600s, and he he doesn't invent the telescope, but he uses the telescope for the first time to make you know observations of the night sky, and then sure. he tells people what he sees. 
Um, and that's the first time we really have evidence that uh, it looks like maybe the planets are going around the sun instead of vice versa, the sun going around the, you know, the sun and all the planets going around the earth. Yeah. You know, you're kind of moving the earth from the center of the universe to, to being a planet. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, he's often held up as, well, this was, this was science and, and this was pure knowledge and the church was against this because of, um, you know, because of, um, you know, the way that we're, we're going to interpret specific passages of scripture that talk about the sun moving, talk about the earth, you know, not moving. Um, and so that's sort of one of those classical, classical places where people say, look, this is, this is the church against science. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and, there, and there's truth to that, but, but it's so much more interesting when you actually look at sort of, you know, what's the context here? What's, what's Galileo saying? What's his personality like? Who's, who, is he, who is he ticking off? Why are people getting so annoyed with him? Yeah. Uh, what's going on with the Protestant Reformation? What is he saying about scriptural interpretation? Um, and so if you actually start to look at this, it, it really becomes a much more nuanced, much more three-dimensional thing. Um, and then you start to get, you know, you've got this whole debate between people like Galileo, the Copernicans on one side, saying that the Earth moves and it's a planet. And then you have people on the other side saying, usually sort of lumped in with sort of the, you know, uh, non-science, the church, or bad science, saying, no, the Earth is, is fixed at the center of the universe. And if you actually look at, like, the science of the day, there, there's really good reasons scientifically to argue for both you know, for both sides, um, okay. that the science isn't necessarily cut and dry, but to say something like the Earth is spinning through space right now, moving really, really fast, I mean, that's absurd, right? Nobody sees that. Nobody feels that. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's not just, you know, stupid, the church versus smart, the science. It's actually this really complicated, nuanced thing that has always been this really interesting interplay. You've, you've always had people on both sides because there's never really been two sides it's always been sort of this 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 quest for truth and uh, uh so yeah so i like to talk about stuff like that and i like to talk about stuff like that with students and i get excited talking about stuff like that that's awesome yeah i, I mean i never would have even thought about i mean i know about necessarily like the religion versus science aspect of it but yeah when you start to look at it and go okay let's take a step back and look at you know why Galileo was doing what he was doing and who he was and stuff like that. It's it's a very similar type of thing of when you're studying scripture and you take a step back and look at the author of one of the books of the Bible kind of thing. It's oh, good. It's giving it's giving context, right? Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, you, you you understand the the scripture itself and what it says, but then you understand it as a in a deeper way if you if you understand the context around it. And exactly. I think it's the same way with science because science today is often treated like dogma, right? It's treated like scripture. It's like, here, here are the scientific laws, and, and you know, there they are. Um, but in a sense, they're, you know, they're a product of culture as well. They're a product of, you know, the, the people that, that do the work, the reasons that they do it, the, the presuppositions that we have. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's what I think the history of science does. It brings some of that context to the talk. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's pretty sweet. Now... Do you do you run the planetarium at Olivet, Olivet Nazarene yeah, University? Yeah, so I'm the planetarium director here as well. Cool. Yeah. So now, what what all does that? I've been to the planetarium. When I was there, I was I didn't go to that actually, which is kind of sad. I should probably go there and do that. But <laughs> I remember next time going. You're in as, town, you should. Do what? Next time you're in town. I'm down. I am down to get down. I went there. I've been to one one time. I don't remember where it was, but I remember it was pretty singing cool. What all does that entail when you're when you're giving a presentation for the planetarium, and what what are the goals to try and that you're accomplishing there with the planetarium? Sure, yeah. So the planetarium, I, I love the planetarium because it's a it's a, it's a really unique and really useful pedagogical tool, right? I mean, it's it's a curved. I mean, it's, you're sitting under a dome. And you can basically show, well, at the digital planetarium, you can basically show anything you want. You can use it as really a fantastic, immersive uh, movie theater in some respects. But, um, <laughs> but on a basic level, you can use it to project the night sky from any place, you know, day or night, any time. Um, and so, you know, you, you try to explain things like the motion of the planets or the way the constellations change throughout the year. And, you know, it's 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 hard to explain those things. It's hard to see those things like, you know, flat on a page. 
And if you were to go outside and watch for these changes, you'd have to wait, you know, days and days and days and years and years and years. Um, and so you can use the planetarium as a time machine and, and um, you know, show these concepts really quickly and really easily. So we use it for labs and we use it for classes. And then we also use it for, um, we have, you know, elementary, middle school, high school students all the time that are coming on field trips. And, uh, and so it's not just for it. college students then? Exactly, yeah. It's not just the college students. We oh, have different cool. presentations for all different age groups. And, I mean, you, you talk about blowing kids' minds. I, mean, I bet. You know, kids are already excited about space. And, uh, and they, I say the same thing about, about college students as well. I think I teach the best class on campus uh, because, you know, people are in astronomy because they're, like, genuinely interested in learning about space. Yeah. Um, and so, so, yeah, so we use it, we use it as a teaching tool. That's awesome. So you, you had kind of mentioned back a little bit when you were younger, um, you were fascinated with that kind of stuff. What were some of the stuff that initially just grabbed you and you said, you know what, I want to get digger, I want to dig deeper into this and I want to understand why things do what they do, why the planets look like they look and, and react and all of this different type of stuff. What were some of the initial things that just, just stood out to you and said, I, I want to know why that does what it does kind of thing yeah it's always been on some level it's just always been the night sky right just you know everyone has that experience of going out and, and looking up at the stars and just like wondering about them right i think that's like a well maybe less today uh with light pollution and people living in big cities yeah and, that's true <laughs> i don't know but um but it, it's sort of been this constant of, of the human experience you go outside and, and you sort of have this this moment of awe of awe and wonder I almost said awe and under, um, <laughs> awe and wonder, and um, and for me it was just you know it was it was wanting to like and then, and then so you have that right you have that on one hand on the other hand you have you know you can you can read in books or you can look up on Wikipedia or you can you know watch Cosmos and you have all this information like oh those spots of light well those are actually you know these huge balls of gas that are you know millions and millions and millions of miles away and we actually live in this big galaxy and there, there's all this data and you look at the nice thing you're like well, how on earth do i go from that to this like how do i get there how yeah. how is it that we've actually like figured all that stuff out yeah um and that was what was fascinating for me and i think that's still what's fascinating about teaching like because that, that's the story i get to tell um like I, i'm not just i don't just i'm not just going to give you all this information i want you to understand like how we know what we know. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a cool story. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so here's my question to you, one of the one of the many, I guess. But so you're you're telling me this stuff about you're you're wanting to know the reason why um, and the things that are fascinating you about that um, and and just how we get the information and things like that. How would you look at that and then tie that into Christianity? Because, like you said, a lot of times it'll be religion versus science sort of thing. So how how have you kind of looked at that and gone, they're not against each other, but they're they're merged together, they're on the same page kind of thing. Not Maybe not in everything necessarily, but how, how do you look at that and, and relate that or bring it into the same context of this almighty, all-powerful God? Sure, sure, yeah. Well, one of the things that, that I would that I that I could say right away is that you know if you just look at historically the people the people that have sort of asked these questions and investigated them, you know there um, I, th I think there are people today that would like to say you know look at look at the physical world and something about that sort of shows us that there there's no God right it's all just random chance and you're just you're just sort of on this this dust moat on this tiny corner of the galaxy yeah. and it, and it's all sort of meaningless. Um, and then on the other hand, there are people that say, well, no, it's, it's all incredibly, you know, intricately designed and created, and it's all, it's all incredibly meaningful, and it's all wonderful. Um, and, you know, I, I look at both of those, and I say, well, uh, me as a historian, I can say, you know, the people that have done the work, the people that have sort of been answering these questions, um, they're not all on one side or all on the other. I mean, the... They they're, they fall all along that spectrum, right? From from being from believers to being from atheists to being agnostics. So, one thing I would say right away is that you you look at the universe, you look at the data, and you you still sort of have to make a decision, right? You have to you, you still bring your own your own assumptions to that, 
and you either see it as incredibly meaningless or you see it as incredibly meaningful. Sure. Um, for me, I see it as incredibly meaningful and wonderful and, and fantastic. I think uh, I think this is uh, you know this is the response the response to learning more and more is sort of humility and wonder and gratitude. And I would, but that's that's almost like a personal choice, right? I can't, and that's that's one of the things that that I that I that I try to be careful about how I say. Yeah. I don't think the universe can prove God. I don't think the universe can disprove God. Like the universe is, and we find ourselves in it, and then we make a choice about how to respond to it. Um, and and I think I think I can say that. Um, I think that's a safe thing to say because I think that's sort of what the data illustrates. If you look at the lives of different astronomers, I mean, there are very firm believers, there are agnostics, and then there are atheists, um, and they're all over the spectrum. So. They really does that, are. Does that sort of answer your question? Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, and so, okay. When we, there's a lot of different things when it when it comes to like um, Darwinism, things like that, where you know you have the the concept of evolution and things like that. Um, what what do you, I'm sure you probably get asked questions like the Big Bang and things like that. What what would you? What are some of the answers that you would typically give to a question like that? Um, like, uh, so, so I had a student ask me after one of the first uh, days of class this semester, he came up to me afterwards, he said, um, you know, I believe in a literal interpretation of Genesis and, and I don't really believe in, you know, in, in the Big Bang. Am I going to like fail your class? <laughs> Am I going to fail your class? Uh, and I was like, no, I mean, absolutely not. I said, I, I don't, I don't teach science as dogma. What I want you to know is I want you to know. The evidence, right? I want you to I want you to be able to explain why someone would say the universe is 15 billion years old, right? Why would why that's that is that an arbitrary number? Why not you know 150 billion years yeah, old? Yeah. Why not you know 15 years old? What what does the evidence indicate? Um, but I'm not going to tell you what to believe. So as far as the Big Bang, you know that's a, that's a really interesting um, that, that's. It's, it's, and again, this is one of the reasons, one of the ways that I think knowing the history sort of contextualizes this sort of thing. Sure. For centuries, you know, even back to Aristotle, the idea was a static, eternal universe. Um, even Newton, even Einstein had this idea that the universe was unchanging. It was sort of eternal. Um, and, and maybe the Christian answer to that would have been, well, you know, God made it, but it sort of made it sort of to look static, right? It's not getting bigger. It's not getting smaller. You look at the large-scale structure of the universe, and it's, it's static. Yeah. Um, well, then we start looking at observational evidence going into, uh, into the 20th century, and we, we realize that that's not actually true. The universe is actually expanding. It's getting bigger. All of the galaxies are receding from all the other galaxies. And, uh, and the weird thing is that Einstein's equations actually indicated this, and Einstein was so fixed on the idea of a static universe, he thought the idea of a universe that was either expanding or collapsing was sort of absurd, so he actually fudged the numbers a little bit. And when Hubble comes along with his evidence and says, well, actually, look, the universe is expanding, Einstein says, wow, that was my biggest blunder. I could have actually predicted that. <laughs> um, so then you have a model of this expanding universe, and you actually get a Catholic priest who says, well, if we run that back in time, the early universe was very, very small and very, very dense and very, very, um, he calls it this primordial atom, right? So the universe sort of, um, has been expanding from a very small, infinitely dense point. And, um, and he, was a, he was a Catholic priest. And so actually it was agnostic, some agnostic and atheistic astronomers, well, a lot of astronomers, because everyone's going to question it until you have good evidence to support it. Sure. But a big argument against that was, well, that, that's max of creation, right? I mean, that, that, that's like you could point to a moment when the universe was actually created. Uh, and so a lot of resistance to what was, became known as the Big Bang was actually on the other side. Um, and I do, one of the things I tell my students is, I'm like, the Big Bang Theory, it doesn't say, it doesn't tell you, and this isn't my own quote, but it doesn't tell you who banged or what banged or why it banged. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a theory of the evolution of the universe. It's a theory of what happened from very early on onward. But actually, we can't, with our theories, with our models, with our equations, we can't actually go back to the beginning. All of our data breaks down. Um, so it's a very strong and compelling cosmological model. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's, and, and, and I teach it in my classes. I said, this is, this is the evidence. This is everything that points to a universe uh, being about 15 billion years old. That's awesome. So from what I'm hearing, what you're telling me here, when you're teaching your classes, it's almost as though, and I, there's some things I'm sure that are 
these are set in stone kind of things that you are teaching that you know you should pay attention to but it's almost as though you're wanting to teach so that people can figure things out on their own am i hearing that right that's why you should that that is why you should teach science at a liberal arts college right because we live in a society that that's dominated by science and so people need to be scientifically literate and sure. so i'm i'm less concerned that students leave classes um you know, having a whole bunch of data crammed into their heads than I am that they understand how science works, sure. right? Uh, how the scientific prog process uh, works and how they can figure stuff out themselves exactly like you said. Awesome. Well, I like that idea because it's, it's, I mean, I've had, I've had professors before that, you know, like in, in theology and different things where it's, uh, it's it, at first it was frustrating until I understood what they were doing. Uh, where it was like, why don't you just tell me the answer? And they're, they're looking at me going, because I want you to figure out what you believe, not, I don't want you to be a clone of me. I want you to know what you believe, why you believe it, and be able to back that up. And so sure. that's that's pretty cool. Um, now, outside of uh, astronomy, different things like that that you're doing with the planetarium, um, you do other stuff too. You're a writer. Yeah, yeah. So I, I write and I publish um, science fiction and fantasy. And so I, and actually, if you tie back to sort of what got me interested in astronomy, I should say, you know, I was one of those kids who grew up reading and watching science fiction. So that's always been a big part of my life as well. Okay, so when you're, when you're writing these things, and let me see, there's a series of things called First Fleet, correct? Mm-hmm, Okay. Yep. Uh, and there are there four of those. Uh, there will ultimately be four. Yeah, the last the last part drops sometime this summer, I think. Okay, sweet. So what what uh, what is prompting you to write the science fiction? Um, and and would you would you classify it as Christian science fiction, or is it just science fiction? Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I think I would be really careful with, with uh, a label like Christian science okay. fiction. I think it's, it's science fiction written by a Christian. Okay. I, I wouldn't, one way that's really helped me think about what I'm doing, I took a, I audited a course that my friend was teaching on um, Catholic, uh, Catholic writers, Catholic novels in the 20th century, he called it. Okay. And, and I'm not a Catholic, but I, but I, I really resonated with, I, I looked around one day and realized that, you know, a lot of my favorite science fiction authors uh, were Catholics. And they weren't writing to evangelize, right? They weren't writing, like, to clearly spell out a Christian message. Um, they were writing to create good and beautiful art. And, okay. you know, and they were, they were doing that, I thought, in a, in a really meaningful way. Um, and so I think that's that's what I try to do in my writing. I write for fun, right? This has always yeah. been a hobby. I, I've always written, a, I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always written for fun, and it's only been in the past, I know, five or six years that I've actually started selling, uh, selling my works and, and turning a hobby into something that's not in any way paying the bills, but but actually <laughs> kind of getting out there and getting published. Yeah. Um, and I, I see, you know, I see a lot of, in a lot of contemporary fiction, there's, there's a lot of despair, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of darkness. And I, I, even though, even though especially First Fleet is kind of gritty, um, it's kind of, it is kind of dark in some aspects, but I feel like my writing, I kind of realized the other day, I'm trying to, I'm trying to reinvest some wonder into contemporary, uh, contemporary uh, speculative literature. Okay. Um, I think the universe is, uh, and and this this comes out in First Fleet. Uh, I think a lot. I think the uh, it, there I sort of portray the universe as a really terrifying and beautiful place. Um, space is really is really dangerous. Space doesn't really, you know, the universe itself, like the physical universe, space doesn't really care whether or not you live or die. Um, in fact, so much in this universe that uh, that I have this. I, I can kind of go into the plot, but that might be a tangent. But there's that's that's a big sort of part of uh, some of the technologies that are developed in this in this little universe that I'm playing with. Um, but I want, I guess, I want my r readers to have to really have a sense of, of wonder in uh, in the universe. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, okay, give us a maybe a brief synopsis of what First Fleet is like. What what uh, what's the plot and where's it going? I, we're fine with tangents. 
We, we got okay, all, okay, sure. We well, got all the time in the world. Um, it, it sort of was a serendipitous project, actually. It, uh, it, it kind of grew organically. I was, um, I, I, when I write, I do a lot of free writing where you just sort of just like kind of barf out a bunch of ideas on the page. You're, yeah. you're just kind of writing, and, and, and I find that then I'll go back through these, these files, and I'll just like, oh, that's an interesting concept. You know, I'll play with that, or that's like the, the interesting beginning of a story. Um, and uh, so this was sort of uh, an idea that I had kind of had a few pages kind of drafted out. And then there, there was this call for an anthology, and it was, it was science fiction stories in the, sort of in the, um, in the style of H.P. Lovecraft. And H.P. Lovecraft is this really uh, kind of bizarre science fiction writer from the early 1900s, sort of like the, the science fiction version of Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. Um, <laughs> And so I thought I could I could turn this into a really creepy story and, and make it fit into this anthology, um, and so I did. Um, and it actually was rejected. They did the anthology didn't want it. But later I sold it to a different magazine. And um, um, and so then there was a, a curious sort of an interesting connection with, uh, with the guy out in L.A. who who works for this or, or runs this this uh, production company called Retrofit Films. And they wanted to break into e-publishing. They wanted to uh, to publish some some science fiction. They sort of wanted to start a line of science fiction books that they publish electronically. Yeah. And a friend put me in touch with them, and he said, "Well, send me some of your stuff." So I sent him some of my stuff, and he he cabbage onto that story. He's like, "This is it. This is what we're looking for. Can you spin out a novel from this uh, from this short story?" Um, and offered me a contract. And I was like, "Well, I've never written a novel, but you know, that sounds like fun." Yeah. Um, so that's what that's where First Fleet came from. So the short story became uh, First Fleet One, which is called Bones, and then I went on and wrote the novel in three parts: parts two, three, and four, which yeah. are which are being released serially. So, um, so it's a it's a science fiction thriller. Uh, the idea is that there's uh, there's a what I what I did with the short story was I really just sort of set myself a riddle. And the nice thing about writing short stories is you don't necessarily have to answer those riddles. But then, if it becomes a novel, you actually do explain like what's <laughs> going on and what happens. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so there's a there's a basically it's it's a few hundred years in the future, and um, soldiers are space is a dangerous place. Soldiers die a lot, and so the way that that we recruit for soldiers is we have technology so that if you die. Uh, before you go on any mission, your your memories are uploaded. And if you die, if there's any like any recoverable tissue or cells or anything, uh, you bring them back and we culture them and we grow you a new body and we download your your memories back in your brain. Oh, and wow. so you're sort of you know it's sort of effectively immortal in the sense that um, you 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 keep coming you can keep coming back right yeah um, and. Uh, and so that's that's one aspect, and then there's there, that, and then then we encounter some some sort of really creepy aliens that sort of uh, are able to use that technology in some really creepy ways, and um, there's a whole <laughs> there's a whole lot of different things going on, but basically uh, a fleet of ships disappears, and there's a there's this there's this a war that's about to break out, and so the story follows these two individuals. Um, uh, Becca, whose sister was on the first fleet, and so she's trying to figure out what happened to the first fleet. And Cam, who is this mother, um, and uh, her family just kind of sort of gets wrapped up in, uh, in sort of this unfolding disaster. And uh, so I created these characters and then tried to figure out what on earth happened to the first fleet and uh, <laughs> how we would wrap it all up. Now, did you have an idea when you're writing this, did you have any idea how you were going to have this come to an end or does that just come to you as you go um i t again this is this is my first novel so i tend to be one who doesn't outline things really rigorously i mean i had some idea of the general trajectory yeah um it helps that i had a fantastic editor uh chris Sonata with retrofit has been um, just, you know really invested in the project and was really excited about it so uh, a lot of it was was kind of doing what we're doing right now, talking on the phone and kind of brainstorming ideas. Yeah. Um, he's done a lot of television production, so he had a really good sense for like almost seeing it in his head like a movie, cinematog uh, cinematography. Um, 
and uh, you know how how it would it would play out. But um, there were certainly some twists that surprised me that I didn't necessarily see coming. <laughs> nice, uh, that's always so, good. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it was fun to write. Awesome. Well, I'm I'm yeah, I definitely need to check that out. You got me hooked. Um, cool. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Tell all your listeners. It's uh. It's First Fleet. It's available on Amazon. Yeah. They actually made a book trailer for it. I did. I didn't realize that 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 they did this. I saw that. That book books, trailer so like, was pretty sweet, and that kind of got me intrigued too. But I wanted to hear it from you, because the trailer looks pretty stinging cool. But I've watched trailers that were awesome, to like movies and things like that, and I watch and I'm like, oh, it's it's a major disappointment. Yeah. But here no, I think, you, I think like, the trailer oh, did a good job. I think it's, uh, yeah, it, it kind of captured the, the creepiness of, uh, of, of some of the plot. So, yeah, so that's, uh, let's see, retrofitpublishing.com. Cool. Well, yeah, we'll put all that all of that information on the episode info, too, so that way uh, anybody who wants to check that out certainly can, and it'll shoot you straight to the Amazon link. But that's pretty, that's pretty stinging cool. I I don't know. It's kind of funny how it just started out as something small, but then someone's like, "You should write a book about that." <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> it w- I, it wouldn't have happened otherwise, but I'm I'm quite glad that it did. Yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty awesome. Um, now, what are some of the other stuff you write? I've seen uh, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, uh, different things like that. Yeah. What, so what is that uh, about? I've sold, I've sold three or four stories too. That's an online, a, a really slick, really nice uh, online magazine that publishes what they call literary. I think they call literary adventure fantasy. Okay. Um, and uh, so I've sold I think four stories to them. Um, and uh, yeah, I think probably a good portion of what I write falls under sort of the, the um, you you would probably classify as fantasy. Okay. Uh, and uh, again, I, I enjoy I, I enjoy creating. Sometimes I think I write a story just because I've got a really interesting uh, like place in my head, and I just kind of want to go there and spend some time there. Yeah. Um, and so you just kind of create a character to kind of wander through it, which um, which is which is sometimes effective and sometimes not. But uh, but yeah, that sense of sort of that idea of wonder. So I've sold I've sold quite a few to Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Um, I have one that was just published in uh, Orson Scott Cards um, online magazine. Uh, so yeah. And you've recently won an award. Was I seeing um, that right? Well, yeah, for... no, that's right. Yeah, so that's uh, that's sort of the other side of my writing, which is the the research, the nonfiction writing. Um, I yeah. Submitted uh, there was a, a chapter. Uh, well, a paper based on a chapter of my dissertation. Uh, was was awarded the 2014 essay prize for it's a it's a um, it's a journal a history of science journal called uh, uh, Annals of Science and uh, so that'll be published there and it won it won the 2014 prize. Well, congrats on that! That's pretty awesome. Thank you. I'm glad that you said it because I I was reading it and I did not want to butcher <laughs> that first word and I could see I have it. To, I have to pause like half a second uh, yeah. every time I say it. And I think it's that that Napoleon Dynamite um, commercial I, when he said he, he I don't think it's in the movie itself. It was like in an ad for the movie. Yeah. And he's like, "You'll go down in the annals of history," and uh, <laughs> and that's now I always have to pause. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's because I was like, "That can't be right." I'm, I'm reading it on here, and I'm like, "That can't, I can't." I'm not gonna say that to someone on the, an interview. Like, you won an award for. The annals of science. That this sounds awful. It's that's right. That's it's like right. a probing no, award, or what? What was that? You know. And so I was just like, that, that can't be good. You know. So, <laughs> that's awesome. So now another thing too that I was looking at. It's on your website. You take photos. Uh yeah yeah I do. Okay so what what are do you, are is that more of just a, like a hobby or are do you try to um, sell those photos anything like that. No, it's just a hobby. Um, I um, I, f- I like to look at stuff, and you can you can do that without seeming creepy if you have a camera on your neck. Camera, yeah. Um, so uh, I I like I I call myself an urban photographer, and what I mean by that is that I don't I don't really take pictures of people or pictures of nature. I like to get into like towns and like and like take pictures of the architecture, but take pictures of like. The stuff that everybody sees every day, but nobody really looks at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So I like to, you know, maybe walk the tracks or go down the alleys. It, it, I like to do this early in the morning when there's not a lot of people around. I just take pictures of the buildings, the signs, the stuff that, I don't know, I just, it, it appeals to me for some reason. Almost like before <laughs> before the city wakes up, you want to get it at, yeah. its, at its rarest, rawest form. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. That's pretty awesome. I, mean, I, I was looking through some of them, and I'm like, that's pretty sweet stuff. And then you're taking it different, different angles, things like that. Um, do you, I mean, do you ever want to try to, try to sell any of that stuff? Do you have any, like, framed up on your wall or anything like that? I think my wife printed up a couple. I think there's one, some tangled power lines or something hanging up somewhere in our house. But, um, yeah, at this point I don't, I don't really know what to do with it. I just, I, I do it occasionally for fun. And yeah. so I, it's good, it's good content for my blog. Yeah. Which, yeah, we're going to include that that in the um, episode notes and things like that too so you guys can go and check that out um, so okay here's a here's a big question too um, sure. do you have a favorite star <laughs> is that is that a tough question to ask you favorite star um, or, no, or planet or I know I know that they're different I don't want to a favorite planet well I always, I always thought Saturn. You know, everybody picks Saturn, right? Because it's got the, it's got the, the pretty rings, it's got yeah. the fancy rings. Um, my favorite star. Um, I, I, so there's, there's the star, and, and I could, I could point it out to you in the summer sky. Uh, okay. It's called Albireo, uh, and you can see it with your naked eye. And what I love about Albireo is, um, you take a look at it through a telescope, and as most star, well, uh, maybe about half stars are, they look like a one star to your naked eye. You look at them through a telescope or even a pair of binoculars. And they're, you know, a double star, or maybe even a triple or a quadruple star. Um, and so Albireo is one of these. It looks like a, looks like a, just a single point of light. You look at it through even a fairly small telescope, it's a double star, but it's not just doubled, so you don't just see that it's actually two points of light. One of them is this really bright sort of yellow-orange color, and one is this, this dark, uh, well, this, this bluish, bluish-white color. And there's just really beautiful contrast between these two. And, you know the stars have color, but you don't really see that contrast very often. Um, and so I love showing this to, to my students as well, because uh, when they look at it through the telescope, they're like, wow, that's, that's really neat. Um, and the guy that, that I wrote my dissertation on, uh, my history of astronomy dissertation, uh, spent a lot of time studying double stars. Because uh, if you can, you, you remember the scene um, in Star Wars when Luke is kind of standing and he's watching the double sunset? Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's what I'm talking about. Double stars, two stars that actually orbit around each other, nice. and it turns out if you if you watch those over long periods of time and measure them really carefully, well, you can get you can get information about like um, the mass of those stars, maybe even how far away they are. You can get a lot of really interesting information about the stars uh, from from uh, some interesting pairs of double stars. I never, I mean, obviously I've seen that in Star Wars, but I never knew there were double stars. That's pretty stinking cool. Yep. I'm learning yep. how. So you're teaching me all kind of stuff, and this is over over the phone. <laughs> so I need to come out and go to the planetarium. My mind is going to be blown. Jeez. So Saturn would be your favorite planet, then, right? Or not? Yeah, probably favorite planet in our solar system. It, but yeah, oh, Saturn. is there one in another solar system? Well, this is a big thing right now. This is the, the exoplanets, right? Discovering planets orbiting other stars. This yeah. is. Uh, this was science fiction when we were kids, but it's like, you know, a reality it's now. Coming to, yeah, yeah, it's coming to fruition now. So, yep. Nice. Um, well, okay, so here's something, too, that, you know, the whole, the whole point of this podcast is to bring different avenues um, to light of ministry and things like that. So let's say that we have someone who, very similar to you, is intrigued by this. Um, they, they look at them and go that there is some sort of, uh, fascination with with looking out there and and gazing at the stars and you know, like you said it's a little bit harder in the city sometimes just because of pollution and stuff but there there is some something there that is a little bit more than just uh yeah I like looking at the stars but there's something more there and they want to uh, expand on that what would be maybe some advice or steps that you could recommend that they would take to start to pursue something where they eventually are running the planetarium or whatever it may be. What what would be some advice that you might give somebody out there that's listening? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I would say, uh, yeah, I would say keep asking questions, right? Keep asking those questions. Um, 
I would say don't don't let that wonder don't let that wonder die. I don't know. That seems really uh, really uh, a prosaic thing to say, um, but it, I don't know. There, there seems to be this this sense where people that ask questions like that and always want to know are kind of seen as well. That's sort of silly. Why don't you just you know just leave get a lie. job or something? Yeah. But that. I said just it was one of those things where it's like I oh, just let it be. You know, like yeah, yeah, it is exactly. what it is. But continue to ask those questions. Right. Uh, you know, and pretty much wherever you are, with, with the internet anymore, right? There's, there's, there's so many resources. Uh, there are so many, so many good books out there. Um, but a part of it is, is really sort of having those experiences. You know, if, if you have a planetarium in your town, just, just go there and start asking the people working there lots of questions. Because those are the people that love answering these questions and love yeah. getting these questions. i got to think um, they would be. Get a telescope. Spend some time, you know, uh, under the sky. Spend, uh, you know, just get a, you know, little um, the Audubon. Is it the Audubon Society that has all those those nice pocket guides, like to, you know, North American trees? They've got they've got a good one to the night sky. Um, and most cities will also have um, just an astronomy club, right? You know, guys that that know this stuff and that know how to find this stuff on a dark night. Um, and they're always interested in. Um, in, in other people that you know sort of share this interest so um, yeah I think I think that's what I would say that's that's probably pretty general I'm not sure but uh, read yeah. just read and read and read 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 the the latest Stephen case oh there you go yeah yeah I that's, don't know how much astronomy you'll learn from reading my science fiction well but, but uh, still I mean it can't hurt uh, right sure yeah it's gonna, no, it's gonna no, blow no, their mind it's gonna change their life probably <laughs> you know, science fiction was was really powerful for me growing up, and and you know I think I think there were some some science fiction novels that that definitely I don't know changed my life, but definitely shaped the way I thought about the universe. So yeah, there's there's something to that. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I've and I've learned a ton already just just over this interview, and so um, I'm I'm quite excited to to dig into um, your books and. Might have to look at my local planetarium and go. That might be a good adult field trip for me or something. I don't know. That's just pretty stinking cool. Absolutely. <laughs> so well, great. Well, thanks. A, thanks a lot for being on the podcast. Um, I really enjoyed well, talking. Thanks for having with me, you. Nick. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening in today. Don't forget to check us out online at legacyhelms.org or any of our other platforms such as iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Player FM. Please subscribe and write a review for us. We want to hear what you have to say. If you need t-shirts for your next big event, we've got you covered. Visit us on the website and click on the t-shirt quote page under t-shirts. If you would like Nick or Kendra to preach at your next retreat, revival, or camp, fill out the contact us form online under preaching. If you want to send us an email and get in contact with us, please do so and send it to LegacyHelms at gmail.com. And as always, remember, don't let your meat loaf or your mop flop.